Hello and welcome to the second episode of Net Zero Nudge, a podcast box set series by Energy Voice in association with EY. In this podcast series, we're aiming to move beyond the ideas that we sketched out in the, 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 the 10 point pod, our forerunner series with EY. That's where we looked at the government's plans. And, and now we're going to try and drill down into how to achieve these big plans aiming to deliver both net zero and some uh, economic benefits. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to welcome John Brakel, partner at EY, and Matt Hastings, Deputy Director of Gem Strategic Innovation Fund. In this second episode, we're looking at decarbonized energy. As we head into winter, eyeing the weather forecasts and perhaps clutching our hot water bottles, the ideas around providing decarbonized energy feel like they've taken a bit of a step back. Here in the UK and in other parts of Europe, Governments have taken some degree of comfort in, in some of those old uh, energy sources like uh, coal-fired behemoths that, that even as recently the beginning of the year, we may have thought consigned to the history books. Fossil fuels are fighting for a place in a world where the sites have been set on net, net zero. And it, and it depends on who you ask, but there is an increasingly vocal defense of North Sea production of gas, of oil, and, and, and also some new thoughts about onshore fracking. But even moving beyond that question around fossil fuels and their relevance in the UK, there's a real important question of what a clean source of energy is. The government has talked up fracking, and that's controversial in some areas. But there's also other areas such as nuclear energy, clean to some, very dirty to others. And it also has the aim of achieving energy exports by 2040. Higher prices, uh, at least in the short term, are going to drive energy saving efforts. But the UK's got clear hopes to cover more of its own needs. With war in Ukraine, much of the continent is thinking about the energy trilemma in new ways of, of, of balancing security, affordability and sustainability. John, I'm going to start with you on this question that we often see around uh, renewable energy. The UK has got big plans to scale up generation, particularly from offshore wind. But does this mean we run the risk of the lights going out if the wind isn't blowing or if, if the sun isn't shining those solar panels? What, what then? Hi, Ed, and, and great, great question, and, and thanks for having me here today. Yeah, absolutely. Look, 10 years ago, this would have been a massive issue, but I feel like the energy debate has moved on. You know, the old adage of the energy trilemma, security, affordability, um, and, uh, and, and accelerating the pace to net zero, I feel like the debate's moved on to actually say that old construct is, is eroding and we can actually get to a place where we can have it all. And the challenge for me is we can't have it all today, but we can have it all in the future. And what's the strategy and what's the plan to actually get us there? Matt, I, 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 should, we, should we not be concerned about this kind of intermittency challenge around renewables anymore? Have we moved beyond that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, we're in a world now where we've moved on from a centralised power system dominated by a small number of large plants to a much more decentralised system. And with kind of digital innovations and other kind of process and system innovations, I think, you know, we're only going to see an increasingly more complex and dynamic kind of energy system as we move forward. And you know, some of those, I'm sure listeners will remember the early days of the solar boom where the very thought of a solar farm was madness. I, in fact, I remember standing with a Cornish entrepreneur in 2008 on a field uh, where he wanted to turn it into a solar farm, an idea which I found completely ludicrous. And I was trying to convince him that a micro pumped hydro storage system would be much more effective. Um, and lo and behold, he was right and I was very wrong. So, you know, the world in which we are now where we're seeing, you know, 
growing penetration of electric vehicles, ultimately giving that storage and flexibility that a high renewable system really needs. We are seeing increasingly larger amounts of batteries enter the system. You know, some of the work that Innovate UK has funded on their Prospering from the Energy Revolution program, where we've got transmission connected batteries at scale, providing really high speed charging uh, to Oxfordshire in particular as a pilot there. And really starting to see, I think, this uh, more intelligent energy system, this smarter system trying to emerge both at a national level, but also at a, a local level. And really, I think that is a combination of not just uh, the generation side or more intelligent demand and demand side activities, but also, I think, smarter networks, you know, transmission, distribution, electricity and gas, as well as system operations starting to evolve uh, in the face of this kind of unprecedented challenge around net zero to deliver the kind of smarts that will mean that, you know, the light shouldn't go out. I think it's it's also really important to remember that we live in a uh, in a global energy market, in a European energy market, and the UK isn't uh, an island in power terms, right? We've, we've got um, multiple gigawatt interconnectors who connect us to to mainland Europe, and we are constantly trading power with our European allies and neighbours through those interconnectors. So, you know, even when the wind doesn't blow, I think having that mix of uh, micro and macro storage plus those interconnectors and smart systems gives us the kind of resilience that we didn't really have a decade ago. John, I mean, Matt's going to turn that question into a kind of one about the grid and I suppose sort of balancing that sort of uh, that sort of supply demand balance. Do you see the problem in the same way? I suppose, you know, historically, we might have seen sort of supply and demand as quite separate. And I suppose, you know, that's sort of a division, you know, between sort of, you know, generation and, and, and sort of delivery. Do, do, do you see this as a sort of breaking down in the same way that Matt does? Yeah, absolutely. I think the opportunities that we've got now with the diversification of our energy supplies, Matt was talking about, absolutely huge. You know, we're talking about introducing a new wave of nuclear into the UK energy market. We're talking about huge penetrations of offshore wind, potential for onshore wind. We're talking about actually power generated in the home and the flexibility of having uh, every home with an electric vehicle providing power back to the grid. These are energy sources that have huge potential to unlock our security challenge. And for, for me, um, th th there are, it's really about the strategy of how we deliver and we enable that uh, that energy system to come to life. And there are huge challenges in that. And if, if you pick a couple, one of the ones that's top of my mind is consumer. You know, how do we unlock the consumer potential and uh, the consumer demand side response elements of that security strategy? You know, some estimates put uh, the consumer role to play in, in that energy mix of, of up to 40% of peak demand. That is phenomenal if you look at uh, what we have to achieve. But the narrative really needs to move on in the UK. You know, we talked about energy for um, 10 years in terms, and you'd have seen this in the news over the past two weeks. We talk about energy rationing. We talk about risk to supply, but actually the debate needs to move on to the smart use of energy, the democratization of energy, the ability for the consumer to participate in the energy system. And we're, we're, we're quite a long way away from that narrative, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that there have been a number of different trials looking at new business models to do with things like peer-to-peer -peer trading, you know, why is it that a consumer with solar panels can't simply sell their excess generation to their next door neighbor? You know, that's ultimately a, a flaw of the, the current market. 
And I agree with you, John. I think we need to change the narrative and change the market in a way which I suppose incentivizes consumers in the same way that we currently incentivize large-scale generation. And, and just going back to what we were saying about flexibility, you know, I think the Carbon Trust's recent report on GB Flex, where they identified, you know, 16.7 billion pounds of net savings per annum by 2050, if we can, you know, develop this fully flexible macro and micro uh, kind of energy system, consumer-led. And I find it really interesting that we're just at the stage when this uh, podcast is being recorded of uh, the Conservative government investing, well, approximately £100 billion in an energy uh, bailout, ultimately to support consumers through this really difficult time. I mean, you think about £100 billion in the grand scheme of things, I think the CCC, the Committee on Climate Change, estimated that, you know, really to achieve net zero, we'd need to invest £50 billion per annum for the course of the next sort of few decades. And obviously, you know, that sounds like a big number, but 50 billion when you incorporate all of the investment across the whole of the private sector, not just what the money is coming from from the public sector, actually feels achievable. And I feel like we really need to, going back to what you're saying, John, about that changing the narrative, have a much more long-term strategic delivery plan for net zero, which delivers the benefits in the right way to the right participants uh, in a market design that is fit for the future, not one which is built for the past. I mean, I think, I think there've been some really interesting idea there around around that kind of question, I suppose, of, of sort of individuals and, and households and kind of communities. Everyone, I think, at the at the moment seems to be uh, seems to be interested in, in getting solar panels to put on their roofs. But I think there, there there's there's still some quite interesting opposition, isn't there, to plans to put solar panels in 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 farmland. Do you think that, that renewable energy is is going to change that community? drive that sort of desire for uh, for energy solutions I, I suppose you know particularly kind of when compared with something like fracking right i mean i think you know the government has also talked about fracking and a, and a sort of return to kind of government kind of community payouts and, and, and a way to sort of incentivize kind of community support for that john is is do you think that the renewable energy has has the edge in terms of sort of making headway with with communities i, th- I think that's a great point ed and i, I think it could do but but i think it comes back to that shift in narrative, a shift in behavior from a consumer perspective. The consumer has such an ability to unlock the energy transition and putting them at the heart of this and getting the consumer to actually drive the change that we need to happen. And there's lots of different facets of that. One being planning, consenting. Do I want a wind farm in my backyard? We've got to change hearts and minds in that respect. We've got to access the flexibility that's unlocked. And Matt, you, you touched on that. I mean, I remember a time where you know, my dad would only ever run the dishwasher, the washing machine and the tumble dryer at night. (laughs) That was just the rule in our house. You would never run the dishwasher in the day. And I feel like we've lost some of that. You know, we've lost some of the recognition that actually we can play an active role as consumers in the energy system. We can do our part and we can be rewarded for for doing that. And I I feel we need to get back into that um, into that debate with with the consumer. And the final piece for me is recognizing the, sh- the massive shift that the consumer will need to make into getting to net zero. You know, whether we're t- talking about gas cookers, whether we're talking about boilers, electric vehicles, actually the shift that we need to make is so fundamental from a lifestyle perspective that it can only be driven by the pull from the consumer. So I feel you know, one element of, um, of what you talked about, Ed, was you know, how do we accelerate 
generation from a consumer perspective and the acceptability of renewables. But I think that's only one part of the puzzle. I think there's a broader campaign we need to go on here to win hearts and minds. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And it's difficult, right? It's really, really hard. I mean, haven't seen the latest stats, but certainly before the um, energy price guarantee was announced, we were talking about a situation where 40% of the UK population could be in fuel poverty. And, you know, when you're in fuel poverty and spending more than 10% of your household income on energy, um, actually, sometimes energy is the last thing that you think about, right? If you've got to put food on the table, if you've got to kind of, you know, pay for school uniforms for your kids, like energy is not the first thing that the vast majority of the population kind of address. And it's almost thinking about those nudge style policies and ways in which you can incentivize consumers to actually make those behavior changes because you know i'm sure like many of the people listening we've been involved in energy for a long long time and consumers have really struggled historically to engage with energy on on a level or at a level which is probably required to achieve the kind of changes that we need and i think a lot of that is because again you know the, the way that the benefits are allocated to consumers from renewables and other initiatives is slightly out of kilter it's a little bit old school so you know where i am in cornwall at the moment i'm staring out on a five megawatt solar farm it must be covering you know a region of approximately you know 20 acres plus i would have thought you know up from that there's a uh, a large wind farm and driving around cornwall you're confronted with large amounts of wind and solar everywhere you go and whilst there has been some resistance to that uh, it's now, I think, kind of become the norm. Um, and what would be really nice is if we could get into a position whereby, you know, renewable developers and communities work hand in glove, like they have done in a lot of communities over the course of the last 20 years. You know, we know, for example, I think the first wind farm ever was set up in Delabole in Cornwall, I want to say in the 80s or, or 90s, certainly a long, long time ago. And we've seen companies like Good Energy and Octopus, you know, develop much more directly consumer benefiting business models whereby, sure, we're going to put a turbine up in your backyard, but you will receive, you know, not just a token gesture in terms of his 50 quid, uh, you know, a voucher or whatever, that you'll actually get 25% odd off your energy bill. And that will, um, you know, really sweeten the deal for you and not just 25% off this year, but every year for the basically in perpetuity. And I, I think if we had those kinds of community focused business models across all developers, you know, particularly for onshore renewables, obviously, then we should start to see that kind of consumer pull, like you're saying, John. I think it's it's really interesting, isn't it, to think about the ways in which you know we can we can move you know as as said right from from you know these setting out these plans to actually kind of delivering some uh, delivering some progress. John, how do we move from, uh, from from the big ambitions to to actually putting things into action? What a question! <laughs> I mean, with with many possible answers, I, I think. Um, we we talked a lot about consumers so far, right? So so I think that's one massive part of the puzzle. Um, I think that the second one, if I kind of had to prioritise of of where we put our attention, where we focus, I think the second one for me is um, is getting to a flexible network, getting to a flexible energy system that can accommodate all of the things that we want to achieve from a demand side and from a generation perspective. I think what was really interesting, actually, as part of the 2019 CCC report on uh, on climate change, um, was actually the, the significance of the network being so huge. 
it is the enabler of everything in the industry. You know, without the network, we are unable to reap the benefits from offshore wind, from nuclear, um, and so on and so forth. But actually, the costs of being able to create a flexible grid are actually relatively small in the grand scheme of things. So, Matt, you talked about scary numbers. You know, we talk about the £54 billion worth of uh, offshore investment to get to an offshore grid that can accommodate uh, our ambitions from an offshore wind perspective. You get into the 120 gigawatts by 2050. Um, getting to that, actually, the 54 billion in the grand scheme of the, what we need to spend on the energy transition to unlock the savings, to create the energy security, uh, and to get to a fair and affordable system is actually relatively small. So, for me, my number two would be um, uh, would be getting to uh, a flexible system that uh, accommodates everything we want to achieve. Yeah, I completely agree with that around the flexible system. I think again, there's some nuances to this though right i think talking about the energy network so the program that i look after the strategic innovation fund you know we're investing 450 million pound over the course of you know the current price control um which goes uh you know from 21 until 2026 um and some of the innovations that we're seeing there you know the networks are doing a lot um but i think one of the challenges is it's not just about the technology um it's about the systems and processes. It's as much about the how as it is about the what. Um, so for example, you know, how do we get into a position where I think there's almost been an over-reliance on government to be the middle of the wheel, to be the kind of coordinator of the broad system, to help us kind of work collaboratively uh, in order to deliver some of these significant changes. And I think one of the big evolutions revolutions, if you like, that we're starting to see is this acknowledgement that you can't just solve it in the networks, you can't just solve it in generators, you can't just solve it in consumer space, demand side, you can't solve it with just finance and investment and investors, you know, you can't solve it with a with a regulator and you can't solve it with organizations like, you know, UK Research and Innovation or Innovate UK who are, you know, investing to to innovate in the space. It needs this you know, whole team effort, if you like. And I think one of the things that we've tried to put together to address that is this Energy Innovation Summit, which will be launching this year, 28th, 29th of September up in Glasgow. And, and the purpose of the summit really speaks to what you're talking about there, John, which is, um, you know, we need a place where the whole sector can convene as one and almost leave our kind of various corporate company, government department identities at the door and just work collaboratively on this enormous problem. It's a bit like, you know, COP26, COP27, where you're seeing different countries working together to try and address these kind of profound issues. Um, and I think we can do a lot more in that space to work collaboratively to, to deliver. So I think that is a, a really big thing that we could uh, consider. And I think that creates this environment where you get government departments like Bayes, DFT, DCMS, so the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, Department for Transport, you know, the Energy Department, etc., who, being realistically, don't historically have a great track record of working together. Um, but now the energy system is molding, you know, where digital meets mobility meets energy. Um, there is a great need for government departments to collaborate and even different regulators. So, you know, we're seeing this nexus, say, between like energy and water, for example, you know, when 
the energy prices started to, to rise, the water prices started to rise, people started to realise, oh crikey, well actually the amount of electricity required to pump water around the country is absolutely immense and all of these things are linked. So, so we need organisations like Ofgem to talk to organisations like Ofwatt. Uh, to talk to organisations like Ofge uh, like uh, Ofcom, for example, like the communications infrastructure required to manage a smart system, um, needs to be exponentially more intelligent than it is is now. So I think creating a place where we can all come together, you know, not to show off to each other, but ultimately to work collaboratively to address some of these challenges is going to be really, really important. I think we're gonna we're gonna take a, a short break here, but we'll be back in just a moment. In the midst of an industry undergoing fundamental change, EY teams offer deep sector knowledge, highly integrated solutions, and a global EY network to help you reshape your business for the future. This time for disruption is also a time of opportunity for organisations to get ahead of change. Decarbonisation, digitalisation, cost pressures and geopolitical uncertainty are just some of the forces transforming the energy and resources industry. EY Energy and Resources teams can help you focus on the structure, services, technologies and capabilities needed to create long-term value and bring you towards the future of energy. Together we can unlock the opportunities of an uncertain future and build a better working world. Fantastic. So I think, I mean, I think, you know, it's some really interesting points that we've raised there. I, I mean, maybe maybe sort of, you know, taking it back a, a step just to look at, you know, how we pick energy sources, right? I mean, I think, you know, the government seems keen to uh, sort of support offshore wind, but maybe is more skeptical around some of those sort of onshore solar plans, uh, onshore wind, things like that. John, what do you think? I mean, is 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 it or is there a place for, you know, kind of government is government leading the way? Should companies be be standing up more to kind of uh, make the case for uh, one resource over another? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think there's a huge role for the private sector here to put forward the best possible plan to get to net zero. And I think the role of government then is to balance between all of those sources to get to the right answer. And I think one of the points that you touched on, Matt, actually, was when we consider energy choices, we tend to frame that and, and create a, a way of thinking around, around that that's purely energy-based. You know, we talk about the trilemma, we talk about affordability, we talk about security, and we talk about getting to net zero. But actually, energy is so fundamental to our way of life that when you think about the choices that we're going to make in that, actually, it has impacts all across um, everything that we do. So it has impacts on jobs, it has impacts on... Um, communities around the UK and the government's role in balancing uh, that perspective I think is 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 going to be increasingly critical over um, over the next 10 years to, to get us to net zero but but to get there we need the private sector to come to the party with uh, the innovations the technologies to be able to accelerate that agenda yeah I think this is it, it's the private sector and the public sector and the third sector and consumers bringing everything that they've got to the table here because I think having worked in a big corporate energy company for a long time um I wouldn't even say in the boom days of energy but certainly um <laughs> at a period which was slightly less challenging than this there was innovation, but was it really moving the needle? I think some of the corporates in this space really struggle with a true culture of innovation. 
one that enables them to be dynamic and responsive and take risks you know ultimately when you've got pressures downward pressures from shareholders uh, your appetite for risk it's understandable that a lot of corporates play it safe um, so I think culturally there's a lot more that we can do across the private sector and more broadly and government is part of that that as well and you know going back to what John was saying on the business side of this and also on the consumer side of this the trilemma itself was almost a negative narrative around these are all the things we need to be worried about I feel like there's a new narrative here, which is almost more along the lines of a triple opportunity. It's possible to do consumer, um, you know, saving consumers money and delivering them new products and services to make their lives better. And it's possible to reduce CO2 emissions and support climate change. And it's possible to develop UK economic growth and have a very thriving startup, scale-up business corporate community, which is exporting its capability kind of globally. So those three things have been seen as, oh, maybe if, if, if we have to reduce costs for consumers, then we have to reduce investment for businesses. Or oh, if, we, if we have to reduce investment for businesses, we're going to have to reduce some of our CO2 aspirations. And I think you can do all of them uh, in the same light in this future. And I think ultimately we have to do all of them in order to create the kind of uh, move the needle at the speed and scale that we that we have to. And you, you mentioned uh, innovation there, Matt. I mean, how much more do we need to innovate? I mean, I kind of feel like you know we've got offshore, we've, we've got big wind turbines, we've got solar panels. What do you think that companies should be should be looking at as the as the next area to to kind of focus innovation? On? Yeah, so a great great question. I think when the CCC first came out with, I think it was carbon budget four, perhaps they were almost suggesting that innovation isn't required. You know, we can just get to four. 40 gigawatts of onshore wind of offshore wind I think it was at that stage subsequently rose to 50 gigawatts with the technologies that we've already got and that has proved not to be the case and it's not the case because um, currently if you want to connect anything large scale into the transmission or distribution network there is an enormous queue that you need to join uh, prior to actually being able to achieve that connection so we've already hit a major barrier in terms of how we're going to accelerate to the kind of levels that we need to and you can solve that barrier i suppose in two ways you know one is you just chuck more money at the networks and they can put more copper in the ground and reinforce the network um, and increase the capacity or we can innovate to really look at these sort of non-wired alternatives as they're called and consider a wide variety of different ways to approaching the problem or as is often the case we do a bit of both you know reinforce the network where we need to but innovate at the same time and the strategic innovation fund the way that we work is we set four annual challenges every year so last september we had a heat challenge we had a mobility challenge we had a data and digitalization challenge and we had a whole system integration challenge and with those challenges they go through a, a sort of different phases of discovery alpha and beta projects so a discovery project can be two months long 150,000 pounds is available they then reapply into an alpha you can uh, successfully secure 500,000 pounds into a six-month project and then they apply again into a beta and if they're successful they can go on to get multi-millions and run a project for for a number of years so that approach uh, encourages a lot of risk taking, especially at the discovery phase. So we might start with, say, 40 projects at discovery. Uh, we had then 18 projects at alpha. They've just started. 
and then we might end up with five or so in, in beta. So the kind of innovations that we're seeing across those four challenge areas uh, really start to address some of the barriers within within the networks and some of the things that, that need to be done there. Every year we have these annual recurring challenges and round two challenges launch, uh, it's mid-September at the moment, so they launch in a couple of weeks time. And there we've got challenges like supporting a just energy transition. Uh, we've got challenges around the decarbonization of major demands, so things like heat and transport. We've got challenges around risk and resilience, so looking not just at climate impacts, but also um, cybersecurity. Um, and then we have a final challenge of trying to prepare for a net zero power system by 2035. So without innovation across these different challenge areas, we're going to hit barriers and blockers uh, that will prevent us from achieving net zero. So that's just within the networks. Uh, I could also talk a little bit about innovation within the public sector, um, just very quickly. That you know, within Bayes, there is a program called the Net Zero Innovation Portfolio. It's a billion pound, um, you know, taxpayer-funded innovation portfolio, looking at an awesome range of different aspects of technologies, you know, everything from uh, heat pump ready program, which is looking at how we're going to get 600,000 heat pumps in homes from an almost standing start by 2028, through to uh, things like their alternative energy market program, which is looking at new ways of uh, building the energy market to, to better serve the needs of consumers, businesses and planet. So I think we do need innovation, but there is a but. I, I do think also we must ensure that we're coordinating innovation and targeting it in the right areas. And that's where I feel uh, we could improve. So things like setting more responsive challenges on an annual basis across all private sector, public sector activity, and ensuring we're not left in that position of saying, right, well, uh, this year our priority is heat and then being stuck with like a four-year program that doesn't evolve and change. We've got to be flexible and responsive when it comes to innovation. What I loved about what you just said, Matt, was how holistic the approach is that you're taking to innovation. You, know, you talked about not just network innovation and pipes and wires, but you talked about market innovation. You talked about the way we interact with consumers. And for me, that's that's where we can really succeed is by bringing all of those threads together. Making innovation part of how we operate as an industry is so fundamentally important. I think sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that innovation has to be big, strategic, long-term projects. You know, we talk about nuclear fusion, we talk about massive projects, and there there is a place for that, and there's a need for that. But I, I love the practicality about what you've talked through there just on that sort of idea around, around innovation and new ways of doing it i mean i think you know obviously there's a there's a, a, a lot of interest and, and kind of abiding interest in, in hydrogen as a sort of a way to kind of deliver kind of decarbonized energy and i think i think that kind of feels like that's uh maybe more as a vector than, than a source in itself but but john just very quickly just on hydrogen do you, do you see there as being a role for for hydrogen and sort of delivering this kind of decarbonized energy yeah, absolutely. I think hydrogen is such an exciting space to be in now. You know, if you think about what we're trying to achieve, trying to get to net zero by 2050, the role of hydrogen and the role that it could play at a domestic and industrial level is really exciting. And for me, the, the big message here is diversity of energy supply and diversity in the energy mix. There is an inherent value for GB in having that diversity of energy mix. And actually, 
recognizing that value and baking it into how we think about the mix that we need over the next 10, 20 years is, is really important. But you know, the role of hydrogen in giving us flexibility, giving us options in how we use energy, how we convert energy in from one type to another is going to serve us incredibly well over the next 20, 30 years. I think it's so important now that we make a set of strategic choices that keep those doors open for us. Matt, I mean, you've talked about the grid, you talked about that sort of delivery sort of side of things. I mean, people are, you know, uh, people are keen on, on, on you know, you touting hydrogen as, as, as one way to, to deliver hydrogen, I suppose, domestically, among other things. Do you, do you see there as being a role? Yeah, I think in a 100% renewable energy system with an abundance of electricity, uh, where you've got a problem with storing that electricity and ultimately using it at a later date, it makes obvious sense to look at the role of green hydrogen as a mechanism for, for doing that. I, I think it's complicated and important to be quite impartial here because there's a lot of organisations who have got a lot to win from hydrogen and there's a lot of organisations who've potentially got a lot to lose if hydrogen doesn't get taken on board. So we just need to make sure that we're looking at the numbers, we're not over-egging the pudding when it comes to sort of the benefits of hydrogen. It's certainly something that needs to be explored and you know we're doing a lot of that on the strategic innovation fund and you know some of the biggest experts in hydrogen in the country are part of national grid gas transmission fantastic team there you know one of the projects that they're working on through the strategic innovation fund is looking at things like barrier coatings for gas network assets and looking at the best materials that can be used for internal coatings of pipelines because um if you put hydrogen in a pipeline, it accelerates the degradation of the existing material. So they're looking at all sorts of interesting coatings, you know, things like electro-deposited zinc, copper or nickel um, that can actually reduce that degradation so that you can actually inject hydrogen into the transmission lines and also into the distribution lines. So there's a lot to consider with hydrogen. Is it an opportunity? Definitely. Do we need to keep an eye on it in terms of the numbers? Absolutely. Is it going to be part of the mix in the future? I'm almost sure that it will be, but let's keep an open mind. And I'm sure that we're going to hear more about uh, hydrogen in the next episode of, uh, of Net Zero Nudge, which uh, looks at uh, domestic heating and, and insulation and some of those questions. But just as a sort of a final question, I, mean, I think we've talked a lot about some of the costs and the challenges and, and, and I suppose the need for change, haven't we? But, but I suppose looking at the, sort of the, the positive side of things, I mean, what do you think companies could do, Matt, to, to try and sort of seize some of the advantages, uh, some of the opportunities of, of, of decarbonized energy? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a huge amount of opportunity on the business side here. I, I think ultimately, you know, I, I think back to some of those organizations and businesses that invested in renewables back in the feed-in tariff days. So going from sort of 2010 to 20. 14. Um, and at the time, you know, I was involved at the Eden Project, we were looking at the business case for things like large scale wind. Um, and we were involved with a lot of other organisations who were looking at similar investment cases. And it was quite hard, even with the feed in tariffs at that stage to make the business case stack up. However, those organisations that made a long term play, more so on the solar side than on the wind side, are really starting to reap the benefits now. And, you know, to think about, I suppose, the business value of receiving renewable energy directly from on-site renewables at essentially zero marginal cost enables you to compete. And, and that ultimately, I think, is the narrative that we want to associate with 
you know, the energy transition is that we want a highly competitive UK economy that is world leading. And in order to compete on a global stage, we've really got to reduce the exposure to price rises that a lot of businesses have off the back of, you know, their gas connections and and kind of non-renewable uh, connections as well. So I think that's the key thing there is around economic growth and how we support businesses to to seize that advantage. And it's not just a case of obviously looking at you know renewables. It's always energy efficiency which kind of crops up as the the wicked problem which has never really been dealt with, let alone in the domestic side. Certainly not really on the business side to quite the same extent. Um, and we would really like to see businesses, I think, embracing the need for on-site generation as well as energy efficiency, which they have been doing. I think a lot of organisations have moved a very long way over the course of the last decade. But there are still a lot of sectors, you know, SMEs in particular, that don't have the balance sheet of some of the larger businesses that are possibly a little bit further behind. And that does need some government support. I think we do need to support the business community in some areas to really kind of grasp those opportunities. I, I think that's a great point, Matt. And um, yeah, if, if I had one call to action for the business community, I think we are on the cusp of a technological energy revolution. I think if we can activate particularly the technology sector to get into the problem of demand side response, you know, building on um, uh, local generation, building on energy efficiency, the next wave I think is that ability to access flexibility. I think if we can activate the technology sector to be able to solve for that in the way that you know, t technology has revolutionized the way we live our lives today, if we can get into that space, I think it holds limitless benefits uh, for us. And to bring it back to the consumer, you know, we are seeing this enormous upsurge in digitalization and the development of new products and services and platforms which are delivering new types of energy services to to businesses and i think about this very similar to say the role of open banking you know um open banking has leveraged billions of pounds worth of value to the uk economy and i think the last stats that i saw was like 80 percent of the startups that were created off the back of open banking are housed in the uk and if within energy we can create things like open energy uh, and we've worked with an organization called Icebreaker One who've created this kind of data sharing uh, sort of governance machine, if you like, which enables organizations to more effectively share data. I think things like being able to share data across the startup community, uh, across the business community to enable them to build the products and services of the future, which will benefit consumers. You know, there's there's ways that we can unlock economic growth in kind of no regrets type scenarios. And I think open data and digitalization is a massive opportunity there. For anyone who's interested in finding a bit more about the Strategic Innovation Fund, please do head over to Spotify and just start search Bright Spark, um, which is our podcast really getting into the weeds of energy network innovation um, in a bit more detail. Well, I think that's, uh, that's a great place to, uh, to bring this episode to a close. So listen, thank you so much, John. Thank you, Matt. I think really, really interesting ideas there. I mean, I think, you know, that I, I, I think we sort of started off by sort of talking about, you know, the kind of the energy side of things. And I think we you know, got more and more into the kind of the, the grid. And I think it's really interesting how that, that seems to be the kind of the critical uh, area for improvement, doesn't it? And, and just the sort of the opportunities that can be unlocked that will then go on to kind of create new, uh, new opportunities for others. Please let us know what you think to some of the ideas we've raised here, uh, listeners. You can email outloud at energyvoice.com. 
And if you'd like to be part of the conversation and share your story with the energy industry, you can email outloud at energyvoice.com too. You may already know that every week the Energy Voice team get together to highlight important stories from the world of energy in our regular podcast episodes. So if you're not already, please do follow Energy Voice Out Loud in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to get this free essential briefing every Friday. This is the second of the five-part Net Zero Nudge. Next up, we'll be talking about insulation and building efficiency. So please keep an ear out for that. For today, I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.